Aloha and welcome to Native Stories. Native Stories exists to share the voices of those connected to the land. Aloha kako, onohea ko My name is Nohea and I will be hosting this episode today. Uh, we've been hearing through news channels about the high rate of missing and murdered Native American women. We decided to find someone that is involved in raising awareness of this problem and is a Native American woman. And we found Jordan Marie Bring Three White Horses Daniel. She spreads awareness through her running. Jordan, would you be so kind to introduce yourself to our Native Stories family? Matakeapi, my relatives. My name is Jordan Marie Brings, Three White Horses Daniel. I am a citizen of Kuichasha Oyate, the Lower Bull Sioux Tribe in central South Dakota, right on the Missouri River. Um, a little bit just about me. I was born in South Dakota and was there until I was 10 years old and moved away from family, which was really, really hard, but uh, it was for hopefully better opportunities um, to, to the state of Maine. And that was a very difficult transition because it was moving to a state that had no idea they had five federally recognized tribes. Um, and being the only student of color for a very long time, I was often the target of bullying and racist comments. And that was the first time I'd ever experienced racism. And so I've always felt me personally, but from other stories coming from Native people, that it feels like you're walking in two worlds when you are with your community back home. That's one world, your cultural roots. But then when you when you leave that circle and you're in more of the colonial society of what is today, it's like another world to like have to navigate and try to fit in while trying to remain true to yourself. Um, and from there went to high school, ran in, ran in high school, track, indoor, outdoor, and cross-country. Um, and then I went to the University of Maine Black Bears for D1 college athletics and ran track, uh, both indoor and outdoor and cross-country. And then I chose to stay there uh, and work with my coach in New Balance Boston for a couple years after I graduated in 2011, um, while also volunteering and working with the local Penobscot nation community working in their travel programs working with their their native youth boys and girls clubs um, and human resources and so that was my way to give back and and be connected to our people even if it wasn't my own and and they gave me a new sense of home while being so far away Um, and finally had the courage to felt like I was ready to leave Maine and my comfort bubble to go to Washington D.C. Um, because I knew ever since eighth grade I wanted to, to work and advocate for, for Native people. Didn't know what that meant or would look like, but I knew D.C. has to be the place because that's where policy happens. That's where change is, is happening. Um, and I finally did that. And after a couple years of some disappointment and realizing it wasn't what I thought, in realizing to advocate for for better futures for for native people it was very slow moving and it seemed like our congressional leaders weren't quick to act Um, we were always put on the back burner and lobbying was difficult to try and get our voices heard Um, but there was a very supportive native community in the dc area so that was really helpful Um, but from there i wanted to give back to the community and work with our work with our communities a lot better and have a more direct impact and that's where i landed at the administration for native americans and was a program specialist and really just helped to oversee what our tribal communities native communities are doing and anything from language revitalization projects to 
environmental regulatory enhancement projects to uh, sustainable development, business development, capacity building, anything to really just empower our communities and have it be led by our people. Can I um, ask for an example of, like, the language one, like, what languages were being... Yeah. Yeah. So in my portfolio at the time, you know, I had a lot of grantees um, that were from South Dakota. So they were working to revitalize the Lakota language. Um, and then we had projects up in the Pacific Northwest in Washington and, and Portland. And then um, other program specialists in my um, department, you know, had grantees from Hawaii and were working with them directly, um, especially Rosia, who I love and adore. And she is a Samoan. And so she really felt passionate to want to be kind of that advocate and voice for, for Native Hawaiian people and making sure that their voices are being heard. Um, so that was that was really great. And it was a, a new perspective and a new, I guess, a new, I guess, just new culture that I hadn't been exposed to. And so I learned a lot being at the ANA. So are you Lakota? Yes. All right, so what is the language right now? Like, not what is it, but where is it at in its revitalization? It's growing. It's uh, some of the programs that I was working with, they're creating immersion programs. So basically creating these language programs so that our youth, tiny, tiny little ones that are just starting to talk, um, go to these programs and learn about their language. And a lot of the time, a lot of the, the classrooms are no English speaking. And it's not just here in Lakota, but it's with other tribes all across the country and and in Hawaii too Um, and it was really beautiful to see I see our little ones carrying on this tradition and they're like a sponge so they absorb it so much faster so it was really beautiful to see so I just want to verify that you guys didn't have that as a normal thing growing up um, um, in the in the schools or in the household I guess it depends on the household right yeah yeah Yeah, for me um so since I had moved away at 10, I wasn't part of the school systems um, back in my tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I knew random words. I knew prayer songs from ceremonies and stuff. But my grampy was, you know, the fluent speaker, one of the last fluent Lakota speakers in our tribe um, before he passed away. But he was also part of the boarding school era. And so he was afraid to speak or teach Lakota to my mom and her brother for fear that they might be ridiculed and made fun of and just have a harder life because of it. So sadly, that tradition of knowing her language didn't carry on, at least for my family. And I know it's like that for a lot of other families too. But now as an adult, I I see the importance of it just from working in the grants and seeing what our communities are doing. So I'm trying to learn and it's really hard. But I'm trying to learn that because when I have kids, I want to make sure that they're carrying on this language. Yep. Yeah. So uh, continuing on past a and Yeah. yeah. Um, so after or during ANA, my time there, I also, you know, was starting to get into community activism. And, you know, the key XL pipeline that's supposed to be happening through the Dakotas in the United States was, you know, just vetoed by President Barack Obama. And I went to a lot of rallies and, you know, events supporting this effort to to stop this pipeline. And I wanted to support the local indigenous community in Washington, D.C. And it wasn't until the Dakota Access Pipeline in 2016 where youth ran over 2,000 miles from Cannonball, North Dakota to Washington, D.C., that I actually organized my first ever like rally for to welcome them to the city, to Piscataway lands, but to also just 
you know, lift them up and elevate them because they were willing to sacrifice their own, you know, physical health to run all of these miles to oppose, you know, this pipeline that is going to cause devastation to the lands and to the water there. And so that was the least I could do. But after organizing that, I was like, that's so crazy. I can't do this ever again. It's a headache, like having to deal with the permits and just making sure everyone's safe and food and money. And I was just like, I really applaud those, you know, that do do this all the time. Um, But once the dog attacks happened on September 3rd and I saw the youth that I had just met and were supporting being attacked and going through this, you know, human rights violations, I couldn't sit back and just tweet about it or share about it or, you know, give my opinions here and there. I had to do more. And so I started organizing and I started showing up at the White House at Army Corps of Engineers with just a sign. And sometimes my friends would come with me or I started, you know, meeting new indigenous folks that were organizing in, in the, in DC. And so then together we collectively, you know, started DC to Standing Rock and, Um, tried to be more of a presence because we started seeing other organizations organizing on behalf of indigenous people for these causes Mm -hmm. and not really necessarily Mm -hmm. inviting us to the table to speak about it. So I'm also kind of, I'm really protective of indigenous folks. And when I see our voices and faces not being elevated and centered on these issues, I get really mad. Mm -hmm. And so during that time, I just started asserting myself at those rallies, making sure I was asking questions of like, who are the leaders here? Who are the main organizers? And trying to find out who's responsible for this, ask the questions why you didn't involve. And even if they're not directly from the community in Standing Rock, you still have natives here in Washington, D.C. And so I wanted to help increase our visibility and our representation. And so over time, January of 2017, um, with the new president, Um, I founded Rising Hearts Coalition, and that was basically just to help elevate and center Indigenous people and making sure our voices are heard and making sure that we were there on the front lines, um, no matter where the fight was, or the front lines in terms of organizing rallies and protests in D.C. And so we really helped um, Indigenous Environmental Network. Whenever they needed help, we would help, you know, organize a rally um, and get people there and get people mobilized to start taking action. And we helped with the People's Climate March, um, March for Racial Justice, and a whole bunch of other efforts. Um, And then from there, I kind of felt like my time in D.C. was up, and I didn't know what that would look like, but an opportunity happened where I could come to Los Angeles, to Tongva Lands, and work on initiatives that were addressing the violence against Native women. Mm. And so I came here in October of 2017 and started working on those initiatives. So I'm going to pause a little bit. So you were running during this time yes. as well, just for fun? Yeah. Or? Yeah, I've I've been running my whole life since I was 10 years old. So um, my grandfather was a runner. My mom's a runner. My great-grandfather's a runner. I'm a fourth-generation runner. Um, and it's something that I have just always have felt very connected to, but at times wanted to try and not be a runner because it was a family thing, and I didn't <laughs> want to feel the pressure to have yeah. to be a runner. But luckily, my parents were very supportive and let me try whatever sport I could. But I just wasn't ever coordinated enough to be good at anything else than running. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've I've been running in high school and college. And then after college, I was running with New Balance Boston. Um, and then I went on my own but still kept the same coach from New Balance when I was in D.C. And I have the same coach now. But um, I'll be working with him but also collaborating with a Native American woman coach, um, Patty 
Dillon. Mm-hmm. She is the first Mi'kmaq Native woman to have been sponsored by Nike and wow. also had, like, multiple world records and ran under two hours and 30 minutes in the, Holy I think shit. it was the New York Marathon. Um, yeah, so I'm actually really excited to have her be part of my coaching staff and hopefully you know, in the next four years, eventually get the Olympic trials standard wow. or qualifier for the marathon, um, as well as get more into trail running because mm-hmm. it's becoming the new it thing, but also trails connect me more to, to nature yeah, and my surroundings line. and ancestors. And I just love it. <laughs> awesome. So, okay. Um, so I've read on the issue and here are some statistics that I found. Um, I think is a few NPR articles that, uh, Native women living on tribal lands are murdered at an extremely high rate in some communities more than 10 times the national average. Another one says 4% of Canada's female population made up nearly 25% of its female Indigenous homicide victims in 2012. That's just like one year as a statistic. And a study in the Urban Indian Health Institute found that in 2016, there were 5,712 reports of missing American Indian and Alaskan Native women and girls. That's like one year, 5,000 people. Um, but the Justice Department's database um, had only logged 116 cases. Do you have anything you want to share? I mean, the statistics speak for themselves of that this is an epidemic, and it's I'd say it's an international crisis. It's not just happening in the U.S. It's not just happening in Canada. That I I'd love to see the statistics happening in our you know Hawaiian communities. Um, one of the races that I did, I believe it was the Mammoth Half Marathon. I included um, a Native Hawaiian brother who was taken and has been missing, and I included him in one of my prayer runs um, because I. I want to highlight that this is a problem worldwide. And a new article came out, I can't remember what it was called, but um, Anita Lucchesi, the executive director of Sovereign Bodies Institute, who now holds the first ever MMIW database, um, she shared an article that Australia is starting to really? take notice of this epidemic and, you know, basically, as Canada calls it, it's a genocide happening in our indigenous Aboriginal communities. And so they published this article talking about these cases of missing Aboriginal women um, and homicides. And so the statistics and the data is lacking severely, but the indigenous, the Aboriginal communities are calling out for, for justice and for, for help and wanting to be visible um, yeah. and trying to find justice. What is, like, why is the databases not synced with the actual? Do you know? I have no idea, but I think it all comes down to just accountability in the U.S. government or or federal governments, international governments not being accountable and taking the initiative to to create something like this or support organizations like Sovereign Bodies Institute or Urban Indian Health Institute in their efforts in trying to address this issue. Um, It would be great if they created something. I mean... I know with the the current president now, he created the MMIW task force. Mm -hmm. To me, it's all disappointing. It's supposed to disband and end in two years, but how much can you possibly do in two years? And on that task force, there is no one that is is representing the advocates, no one that is a family member of of these missing and murdered Mm -hmm. indigenous folks. Mm -hmm. And there is no one like 
you know, Anita of Sovereign Bodies or someone from Urban Indian Health Institute that's on that task force, and they should be. Mm -hmm. And so while it's great that this was acknowledged and something was created to be done for some sort of accountability, it's nowhere near enough, and I'm I'm really hesitant and question and questioning. I guess what's gonna what the outcomes are gonna be of this task force. So, um, do you ha- do you know why, or you know why is it that 25 percent of the homicide victims in Canada, although are are you know such a big number, such a big percentage? Yeah, it's only four percent of the entire female population. That doesn't seem like there seems to be a pattern. Yeah. And so, what is this pattern? Why? Comes, why is it? Th- why is there a pattern? Do you anything you can tell us about that? It comes down to the invisibility of Indigenous people. It comes down to Indigenous people's lives being expendable, thinking that our lives are not worth you know, more than someone who is non-Indigenous. It comes down to, whether it's in Canada or the U.S., it comes down to jurisdictional issues as well. When these crimes are happening on tribal lands, you know, a lot of the tribes right now aren't able to fully prosecute these perpetrators. Um, And I know in the U.S. they'll have to take them off tribal lands, and then the state can't prosecute them because it didn't happen on state lands. So there's this jurisdictional loophole, which the Violence Against Women Act is supposed to help Um, And then the special program that was established in 2013, which is the first time ever that indigenous um, sovereignty was recognized, native sovereignty recognized that they can start, um, you know, taking these perpetrators to tribal courts and start prosecuting on their own lands for these crimes. Mm -hmm. And that didn't happen until 2013. And we've been here since time immemorial. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so this special program, the Special Domestic Violence Criminal Jurisdiction program was is supposed to help make sure that tribes can exercise their rights to prosecute. And so now, you know, it's still lacking. It's still, we're having human sex trafficking coming in through our lands. We're having drugs, you know, being smuggled in through. And all of these loopholes leads to jurisdictional issues and, and uh, the discrepancies there. And so we need to make sure that our governments are, you know, letting us actually have sovereignty right. and making sure that we can you know, use that sovereignty to our advantage and prosecute these perpetrators. So, okay, so the I want to read Justice Department's plan for three elements. 1.5 million, that's not much money, hires specialized coordination U.S. Attorney's Office in 11 states, 11 out of 50, uh, improving law enforcement's response to a report of missing or murdered persons. FBI can be, can be brought in. Um, on such cases uh, at the request of tribal, state, and local law enforcement. And the department will also improve its missing persons data by conducting in-depth analysis of its database. Interesting. So you mentioned a few other organizations that are working on this, have been working on this. Can you describe a little bit, maybe one or two, and what they do, where they're at, stuff Um, like that? First, the Urban Indian Health Institute um, is based up in Seattle, Washington, and they they were the ones that released the first ever MMIW, uh, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Report, back in November of 2018, where you got the statistic of 5,712 were missing in 2016 and only 116 were logged in the Department of Justice database. There, Anita Lucchesi was one of the, the researchers and authors of that report, and so 
not too long after she started and founded Sovereign Bodies Institute. And so now she actually holds the first ever database of of uh, our missing and murdered. And she's not only doing just that, but she's going into, and this and Sovereign Bodies Institute is in Northern California. And she's not only just doing that, she's also trying to go into these records where, you know, correct how they were labeled. Because a lot of the time, Native women have been labeled incorrectly and marked Caucasian. And so a lot of them are going missing even more. And so there are probably hundreds more that we don't even know about. And so she's doing that work as well. I know SBI are also, you know, helping to lobby, making sure that the the policies, new legislation that are being drafted, such as like Savannah's Act, Hannah's Act, Not Invisible Act, that they're they're making sure that these bills are going to actually, you know, help to protect our Native women and our Native people, Indigenous people, um, and making sure that, you know, we have the tools needed, the training that's there, um, and, and those specific acts like what you just described, this task force, um, the three elements, you know, that's all basically in Savannah's, Savannah's Act. Um, and Savannah was murdered back in August of 2017. And the, the gruesomeness and the horrible, heartbreaking, you know, tragedy of what happened to her is, is what has led to Savannah's Act. And in that bill... They, it asks for creating a database, create, creating and updating the database, making sure that you know law enforcement are getting the proper training and protocols in place, that they are consulting with tribal nations. Um, and so what you described is basically that, one, it's not enough money, I don't think, but it kind of um, overshadows this task force and what they're supposed to do. It overshadows a lot of the good work that has gone into Savannah's Act, Not Invisible, and other legis- proposed legislation. And it's overshadowing VAWA, which should be permanently reauthor- permanently authorized instead of having to be reauthorized X amount of years, instead of like our communities having to worry about if they're going to get federal money to, to put into their programming to, to help advocates, to help survivors, to help address these, you know, this epidemic and these crimes that are happening in our communities. So... Um, what you listed, <laughs> I don't think it's nowhere near enough. Yeah. Um, and it should have been a more collaborative effort with the people who have been, you know, working and fighting to, to end this injustice for decades. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm missing, like, how did, how, you know, you heard said this person holds a database. So there is no other database. So how does she get a, in the information about all the missing she works people? with counties, with sheriffs, with police departments, getting that information and sifting through it basically and and making sure that things are being corrected. Wow. Um, it's I she's inspiring and I commend her and the team so much because they're a small team and they are doing such big impactful, life-changing work that I hope, you know, will eventually be one of the major contributing factors to ending this violence in our communities. Yeah. So, I mean, I found you because the marathon and prayer runs, I, I think you call them. Can you tell me how that's helped? And and um, and is there any other ways that people are helping besides those two really huge things? Um and how others out there can can help with yeah. this. Um, so I've been learning about missing and murdered indigenous people 
the last few years pretty heavily, um, trying to be more supportive and, and trying to help organize, help support organizers doing the work, and to really just try and talk about this as much as possible because in our indigenous circles, we know what this is and what this is doing to our families. And I have a relative who was murdered. And, you know, I know someone who their family, you know, they're are hurting because, you know, we all are infected by this in some way. And I started realizing my freshman year of college that this isn't normal. Like, I thought all the funerals that I had gone to in my life when I was younger, you know, were just sad and, like, our relatives were gone, our community members were gone. But once I started learning more about MMIW my freshman year of college and my first ever Native American Studies course where we were learning about the Highway of Tears in Canada. Um, I st- it got me asking questions to, to my elders and my gram- Grammys, like asking about some of those funerals and some of, you know, the Native women who were taken, you know, died from violence, domestic abuse, were murdered. Um, and so I realized that this isn't normal. But it wasn't until several years later that I started learning more and people started talking about it more. And so I wanted to do something to help try and break this, I guess, indigenous bubble because it seemed we all know about it and we all talk about it, but it didn't seem like we weren't getting the attention or it wasn't getting the attention it deserved um, unless the case happened to be so awful like Savannah, which made you know international news. Um, I thought this has to remain an international newsworthy topic to be talking about and trying to help. And so in 2018, March 2018, I ran the San Diego Half Marathon. And I thought, instead of having my name on my bib number, I'll put MMIW. And hoping that once I cross the finish line, people will ask what that means and we can start a conversation. And that happened with a couple of people. And I was really happy that it did. Um, a year later, at the same race did it again, got a few more people, great. Then a month and a half later, I had the opportunity to run the Boston Marathon, and I was going to be a chaperone for Wings of America, and it's an organization that supports Native youth in in running and their education um, and their culture, and uh, I I was really honored to be a chaperone to five Native youth. Um, We're going to be there to take them to Harvard and have a college visit, as well as cheer them on during the, the Boston Athletic Association 5K. Um, and then my other job was to fundraise for, for them, for this, for this organization, and to run the marathon, 26.2 miles. And so when that day came, I knew I wanted to do something, but I also was questioning. I didn't want to take away from our youth because this was their time. Um, but I felt really pulled to doing something, like kind of crazy at least I thought and so I asked my mom who was coming up to cheer me on and be with me and my partner um, to bring me face paint and I wanted it to be red because I had a lot of rallies on the front lines in Standing Rock and everywhere in between talking about MMIW I saw women with a red handprint and I just thought it was powerful and it was a symbol you know, for the violence that has silenced, you know, Native women and Native peoples, and it's happening in our community. So I wanted to take that symbol and put it on my face and paint MMIW on my leg and arms. And I did it. My partner was driving me to the starting line. And I was really nervous because, one, I also don't like standing out. (laughs) Um, So I didn't know what 
this was going to do and how people were going to look at me, but I, I, w- I was committed to doing it. So I get on the buses after he dropped me off to go to the actual starting line, and people were just staring at me, and I just, my ears were burning, and I just felt so uncomfortable, but I knew what I was running for, and I was running, you know, for 26 Native women, and my grandfather was the last prayer, the point two of the race, because he had passed away. Um, And so I get to the starting line, and it all, all went away, all the nerves, everything, and with every beginning of the mile, I said their name and said a prayer. And then for the remainder of that mile, I tried to just enjoy the race because it was the Boston Marathon and everyone knows about this race and the crowd was absolutely insane. And honestly, it was the only race I've ever run in my entire life that felt so easy and felt, you know, I felt light as air. I felt you know, I just was happy and I wasn't in any kind of pain, which I was like, oh my gosh, the pain's going to come soon. Like, right. it's going to hurt. I'm going to hit the wall. Because um, I only had like a month and a half of training. Wow. Um, but it was so meaningful and so purposeful. Yeah. And it sounds like they were picking you up. It felt it. You. It felt it. Um, and then, you know, halfway through the race, I see my partner and my mom and my mom gets anxiety and I was really worried about her. So I asked my partner and he's like running a quarter of a mile with me trying to making sure I'm like taking my fluids. And I'm like, where's mom? And he's like, she's up there. And I'm like panicking. I don't see her. And all of a sudden I hear her Lily to, to me. Um, and so I automatically see her and it's this kind of like, you know, call and like Lakota people do or planes natives do. Um, and so I did it back and I immediately saw her. We connected and then off I went. Um, and then, you know, coming towards the end, the last mile, it did start to hurt because I was trying to push the pace and just finish strong. And I crossed that finish line, and the first person I see is hopefully, like, going to be my new coach, Patty. Um, and I just hugged her, and it was so nice to be welcomed and see a Native woman. And I told her what I ran for, who I ran for, and started crying. We both started crying. And then from there with one post on social media it it took off our story their names you know we're in sports illustrated runner's world now this like so many other platforms and from that you know it inspired rosalie fish uh, at the time was a high school senior in washington and she asked for my permission and blessing to do the same thing at her state meet and she did and she elevated this epidemic and this movement to even higher like to higher public consciousness that I thought was possible and now we're seeing like other native athletes um, volleyball players football players runners at high school meets and stuff that are doing the same thing and so it's combining you know your passion of whatever your athletic ability is that you love and for me that's running and combining your passion of advocacy and then now the last few years it's really been focused on MIW you know felt like it was a new running path for me Mm -hmm. and you know I've done four races now and we'll be doing my fifth and last one for 2019 this coming weekend Um, but honestly ever since Boston it's been incredibly hard it's it's been very emotionally heavy. I think now that I've exposed myself to this even more and now that families, you know, saw their 
family member in, in one of my prayers on one of my posts. They reached out to me um, and being able to speak to them or having other people ask me to run for their relative in the next race. Wow. Um, but also a lot of the research that I would do in trying to find their names. I didn't want to just try and find the names that we do hear about mm-hmm. often. I wanted to make sure that, like, they're not forgotten. And I know they aren't, but I I wanted to honor them that way and, and knowing that here's another person that's looking for you and, and praying for you, yeah. not just you, but your families and for our communities because our communities are hurting. Um, and so this is my way to give back. Um, and like I said, it hasn't been easy. Um, had some very big emotional low points and still yeah. slowly coming out of them. And my health, physical and mental, has really taken its toll. So I'm working with a, a, a therapist. And I think we're going to try and figure out for 2020 and moving forward, like how can we make this sustainable so that I can keep doing it but also, you know, be healthy in doing it and not feel burned out and not feel emotionally drained. So I'm really excited for 2020 to at least the start of it to take some time off to heal fully and yeah. to figure it out. So I, w- I want to point something out that you're doing these things for these women that um, have had a hard life, you know. Yeah, some of them murdered, some of them in abusive relationships, but... But you're strong, and I want to. I kind of want to shout out to those that are in these hard places that we all need help sometimes. Um, like yourself, you, you know, going to see someone, you you know that there's something there that's blocking you and not giving you um, full. Um, your energy is low. Your your spiritual energy is low. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the same thing happens with anybody, mm-hmm. and so even though you see someone strong, you're you can and anybody can relate to just being in a hard place so I just want to you know hopefully those people out there any female or male out there that is having a hard time can relate to you can relate to any of us and see that there is always a, a brighter light out there you can always get there and just ask for help ask for um you know, ask your family, or even if your family's not there, you can just ask mm-hmm. a friend, or there's always someone available if you just, you know, go towards that, that find brightness. Find for you. Yeah. And, like, for me, that's praying or going back to ceremony, going whatever is going to help, you know, recenter you and bring you back yeah. um, and, and give back that energy that you've been expending for so long. So, yeah, definitely don't be afraid to ask for help. I... I'm very stubborn, um, and I I didn't expect any of this to happen after Boston, and I think I was naive thinking, you know, I've I've been organizing and talking about MMIW for a couple years now, but now that I have combined it with something that has always been my stress outlet with running, now it like it is causing me stress and anxiety, not in a negative way, but in the in a way that. This is so heartbreaking, and I want to continue doing this, mm-hmm. but the emotional like hardships that it's bringing me mm-hmm. is very new to me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm dealing with like anxiety attacks, panic attacks. Like I can't watch movies with violence. I'm starting to recognize in the last few months, I, it, like something gets triggered in me and I start panic breathing and mm-hmm. I, I can't watch it now. So I'm having to like censor what I watch, mm-hmm. um, which is 
never happened to me before. And so it's all, it's a whole new learning process of figuring out how to protect me while being able to still continue to do this work. Yeah, mine is being on the water, (laughs) paddling, um, but always exercising, but also just like taking time out for myself to um, just release like all the stress in my life, um, just, you know, whatever I need to do to do that. Mm -hmm. And you can always find whatever it is for you. It's different for everybody. But um, so do you have any like, in the future, what do you what do you hope for? You know, what do you want to see for Native people? Yeah. I mean, the big, big picture is to have this epidemic not be an epidemic anymore. To have, you know, the families who have had a relative taken from them to have justice and so that they can heal and be able to move on instead of staying in this, you know, emotional, heartbreaking cycle. Um, because they want answers. They want closure. Um, I want a future for our Native people, Indigenous people, to be safe and thriving environmentally um, so that, you know, our future generations can continue on after we're gone. Um, For some smaller pictures, you know, I, I want to, you know, qualify for the Marathon Olympic Trials. So that's Sadly, couldn't happen this year. I had to back out of the California International Marathon because of an Achilles injury, which is I've been dealing with since Boston. Um, I, my body's just been breaking down ever since then. Um, but yeah, that's going to be another goal in, in the next four years is to try and get that that standard again, um, and you know, just continue working in our communities and supporting them. I, I love that. That's your small goal. <laughs> <laughs> I like my small goal is to get onto the airplane today. Like, <laughs> right on. It was very nice to meet you. I think you're doing such awesome work. I appreciate everything that you're doing. I know that. Um, I mean, it's always you know the bigger picture is so hard, but at the same time, it's worth it. Even mm-hmm. just doing a tiny bit is is worth it. It feels so good mm-hmm. to help. Yeah. So, do you have any last words? Uh, Lila Palamayaye, thank you very much for, for having me on here, and I hope your listeners enjoy this episode, um, and hopefully we can bring all of our communities together as a collective to, to work towards this and bring justice. All right. Thank you. Um, uh, if you have any questions, you can contact us at info at nativestories.org, uh, and if you have any questions... Uh, we can maybe Instagram to you yeah. or <laughs> however way that works. Uh ho Peace. Thank you for listening to us on Native Stories. Navigate through location-based stories on our Native Stories mobile app. You can find it on Apple and Android stores under Native Stories. Go check them out and leave a review and tell your family and friends. If you have a story you would like us to tell, or want to sponsor a future podcast, location story, or walking tour, please email us at info at Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook under username Our Native Stories.